And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right, save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking about the latest developments in the treatment of unexplained infertility. Unexplained infertility is so very, very frustrating from the patient's standpoint and probably from the physician's standpoint as well. I learned a lot on this show and I think you will too. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. I believe we're seeing more, I guess, couples infertility instead of being male or female issue. Um, there, you mentioned before that uh, there's people, and basically couples are putting off childbearing to later on in life. And with that, it does come some sequelae where you start having maybe subtle egg issues or subtle sperm issues. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. Did you know that Creating a Family has multimedia guides, including a very good multimedia guide on how to choose an infertility clinic? We have got lots of resources, and we have checklists, explanations of how to understand the, the statistics that you can find on clinics, all sorts of things to make this very important choice easier. To find it, you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org, Hover over resources and click on e-guides, and it will take you right there. We are a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. You can also subscribe. You can do that using whatever podcast app you're listening to this show on, or if you're on your computer, just go to our website, creatingafamily.org, go to the radio show page, and you can subscribe there as well. This show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring is pleased to offer their IVF Greenlight program, providing discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, you can go to their website, ivfgreenlight.com, or you can speak to your physician, your reproductive endocrinologist. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in relation to the donor's DNA and that way the clients get a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. With 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey, they maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. And Snowflake's Embryo Adoption now has a magazine. It is called Pathway to the number two family, and it covers topics relevant to both fertility and adoption. You can get more information at pathwaytofamily.org. In addition to these sponsors that I just mentioned, we have other sponsors, and it's through their generosity that allows us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today we're going to be talking about the latest developments in the treatment of unexplained infertility. Our guest today to talk about this is Dr. William Ziegler. He is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey and a clinical assistant professor at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Ziegler, to Creating a Family. And thank you very much for having me. Well, 
I'm assuming that unexplained infertility means exactly what it says, infertility whose cause cannot be pinpointed. But, But why is it that with all the testing we now have available, are we still not able to find the cause of a person or a couple's infertility? Because a lot of our screening tests are very indirect. Uh, we don't get a direct measurement on somebody's ovarian potential or the potential of the sperm to penetrate the eggs. And there are some conditions that we cannot identify right away through our basic testing. All right. So there's just we, we, there are limitations to to our testing, which. Um, make so so that that there's some things that we simply can't explain. What percentage of infertility is ultimately classified as unexplained? Uh, the percentage within the population ranges anywhere between 15 to 30 percent, depending on where you are. Uh, so therefore, we do feel there could also be an environmental um, impact on fertility. What do you mean? Like where where are high areas of unexplained infertility? We're seeing more unexplained infertility in in the cities, in the more of the built-up areas, than those in the country setting or those in the rural areas. Oh, that's fascinating. And this is in addition to when they factor out things like age, because we we sometimes assume that people in in bigger cities may often delay childbearing, marriage, and childbearing. So have they have they accounted for those factors as well? These studies. Yes, they've counted. They they basically have looked at a lot of variables, including um, maternal and paternal age, um, and also stratifying for all of the testing in which in which we get. We look at the results, and if there is a male factor issue, well, those are factored out because there's and there's a reason there. But we yeah, do feel true. there is an environmental um, toxicity possibly that could be that could be affecting fertility. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, We've done a number of shows, quite a few, in fact, on environmental toxins and their impact. But I, and if it was mentioned, I don't remember that the the geographic uh, dispersion would would reflect that, which, of course, it would, because we certainly know some uh, geographic areas have more toxins. So that makes good sense. I just hadn't put two and two together on that one. Is this, is is that a reason, or I guess uh, that begs the first question, which is, is the percentage of unexplained infertility going up or down? I think it's been uh, stable at, at this at this point. Um, it was increasing, but then I think it's stabilized since now uh, we are doing some other testing which have come down the pike to help identify a cause for infertility. Um, and also, depending on a patient's response to treatment, can also identify another cause um, so, therefore, it takes them out of that diagnosis of unexplained infertility and puts them over into either aovulatory dysfunction or it could be an equality issue or um, even a fertilization issue, which we are not aware of unless a couple goes through more aggressive fertility treatment. Well, that kind of um, that begs the question of is we think of IVF as a treatment option, but how can IVF be utilized in, as a diagnosis or uh, as a way of diagnosing or finding a cause for unexplained, what are some of the things that we might learn with well, an IVF cycle that would help explain the unexplainable? When, uh, when we select out a protocol for a couple, it's based on, like I mentioned before, on these indirect measurements. Um, the basic workup, we usually get blood work in the first part of a woman's cycle, and we look at uh, a woman's ovarian reserve, or or basically their their ovarian age, and we look at FSH, we look at AMH, and based on those values, we'll determine how aggressive we need to get in stimulating a woman's ovaries. But even during a stimulation, we are that we're expecting a certain response. If we're not getting that response, and we have to increase the medication or give more gas to their ovaries to get revved up and going, it tells us that. They, they may have a underlying ovarian dysfunction. And then during the stimulation, we can see the estrogen as that goes up. It kind of tells us how healthy those follicles are or how, how healthy those eggs are. When we retrieve, in some patients who may have a great response, we may not get a, a lot of eggs. So that tells us that there could, again, be an ovarian issue or what's called empty follicle syndrome. We, we see that more in women who are older than those that are younger. 
Um, and even after we get out the eggs, we can take a look at the eggs and see what do they look like, um, and, and which an egg should be like a clear marble. But if it's very grainy, if, it's, if it has things, things called vacuoles, and it kind of tells us that the egg may not be such a great quality egg. And then when it comes to fertilization, we take a look at the sperm. And maybe the sperm are not looking as healthy as they should be at that time. And therefore, we may need to use a procedure called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, where we have to put the sperm directly right inside the egg. And therefore, that could, that could be an issue with regard to fertilization procedures or fertilizing inside of the fallopian tube. Maybe fertilization is not taking place. And then after we fertilize the egg and we get the embryo, we kind of watch the embryo grow. And the embryo really needs to meet certain milestones. And that's where we kind of look at the embryo. And um, there, there's technology now it's called an embryoscope where we can actually videotape the embryo and make sure that it is hitting those milestones. And if it is not, then it tells us maybe, again, the embryo is not a good embryo and it may not result in the outcome we want, which is a and which is a pregnancy. And even at the time of transfer, we grade the embryos to see how well they, how, how good are they. Um, and at that point, we may see that the embryo count drop off, that if we start off with maybe 10 embryos uh, at the time of fertilization, we may be ending up with one at the end of the culture period. And then the question really comes down to is, are we dealing with an underlying issue inside of the egg itself or the mechanics inside the eggs, or the genetics inside the eggs. Um, well, and then our other... There, uh, let me stop you there, because that's a question that, that I have. So if, if on the surface an egg looks good and the sperm looks good and, and you, you create an embryo, what would cause an embryo to be either to not meet their developmental milestones or to simply to not thrive um, or to not... Let's don't talk implant yet. But what okay. what would be some of the things that would actually cause an embryo? If if the egg looks good and the sperm look good, why wouldn't the embryo look good? Well, you have to now take a step back even further and think about where do the eggs and sperm come from? Um, the sperm basically is splitting of a male's DNA. Um, a male is 46XY, but a sperm is 23X and 23Y. Well, if the sperm, if, the, if that genome does not split normally, uh, if there's not the equal number of chromosomes in each of the sperm, well, now you're dealing with a chromosomally abnormal sperm, even though the male is genetically normal. Same thing with the egg. The egg is 46XX. It's basically all genetic material from the maternal source. And then as it divides, it actually splits off chromosomes. And that's where you see a higher incidence of genetic abnormalities in women who are over the age of 35 because the genes don't split normally. And therefore, you can end up with, with um, a, a, a trisomy 21, which is three copies of chromosome 21, which is two from mom and one from dad, um, and that results in Down syndrome. Or there's other trisomies that are out there. So even during the the splitting off of the chromosomes, they may, again, not split off normally. The other thing is that as, as a woman gets older, even though their ovarian function looks okay, you have to realize that you do have the mechanics inside of the egg or inside the embryo. Besides DNA, which, which we just talked about, you also have other things, and if you remember back to Biology 101, that you have the you have the mitochondria, you have the ribosomes, you have the Golgi apparatus. I know that's bad memories for many people, but um, <laughs> the mitochondria actually has DNA in it, and that DNA may not be working well. So those are the assembly lines of the cell, of the embryo, and maybe mechanically it is not working well, even though the embryo is genetically normal. So the way the embryo grows tells us a lot about the competency of how that embryo is going to implant. And even though it may get out to day five or the blastocyst transfer, that's when we like to put them back inside of a, of a woman's uterus, it's how they get to that point, not that they got there. But if they didn't get there the way they're supposed to, then that tells us that maybe that embryo that looks great on day five may not be the best one to put back. All right. And, and, and how often, just in your practice or, or through research, 
is it problems with the egg that is ultimately found to be the cause for unexplained infertility? Um, and how accurate is our testing to determine egg quality? Two separate questions, I guess. So let me just start. So it, how often is it the egg quality or something with the egg that is ultimately found to be the cause of unexplained infertility? That's a very difficult question to answer because it is age-related. Um, it's very... It's very hard for me to give you a percentage regarding that. As women does get older, we do know that we see more of an egg issue, even though all their tests point to unexplained infertility. But women who are over the age of 35, I'd have to say that the majority of them are going to have an egg issue where we find an overt ovarian problem with stimulation. So I guess in a way, if a woman is over the age of 35, are they do they receive a di- particularly as they approach 40 do they receive a diagnosis of unexplained or is it really explained almost always explained as a uh, as an egg issue because of her age as long as we have something to support um the egg the egg quality and just diagnosis then we say that it in which it's an ovarian issue um we just don't classify everybody based on age that it is an ovarian issue. Yeah, you want to look for some. So how often is the issue implantation versus versus the, the, the conception that the, the, the embryo is doing fine, but the problem is uh, somehow with it implanting? And how often does that masquerade as unexplained infertility? Um, there are some testing which we do do. If somebody does not get pregnant with an IVF cycle, there is additional blood work to take a look at to see if there is a problem with implantation. We look at um, issues with re- re- regarding blood clotting, that if somebody is carrying a genetic abnormality, that could increase the incidence of blood clots within, within an implantation site. We, we do screen them for that. And I guess in in our liter in, in, with I mean, within our practice, we're probably looking at around fifteen to twenty percent have that if they fail to conceive or if they fail to have implantation. Another another test that has come up um, within the last few years is something called a endometrial receptivity assay, and this is where we can actually test the uterine lining to see if it is receptive at the time of implantation or the implantation window that it has the adhesion proteins there to hold on to a pregnancy. We have had cases where we've done that test at that appropriate time and the markers for implantation receptivity were not there. And despite hormone manipulation, we could not make those um, factors appear. And right there, even though the uterine lining looked great during a woman's stimulation, uh, you have that nice three-layered pattern. It's nice and thick. It looks very lush. It just doesn't have the factors it needs to hold on to a pregnancy. So we are finding that more often in those that have implantation failures. Uh, also, by adjusting medication, we can make those factors appear in most women. So by putting them through, um, let's say, a frozen embryo transfer cycle where we're giving them estrogen, we're giving them progesterone, we can actually improve the uterine environment and improve implantation. And, you know, that's the, the whole implant, but that's a little different from the implantation window, but some of the, uh, not so recent now, but a couple of years old, research showing that frozen embryo transfers uh, are equal to, and, and, and some studies have indicated superior to fresh because of the missed implantation window. Uh, can you explain what that means? And if, is there anything recent that you've read, uh, other than the research that came out a couple of years ago, on uh, determining implantation window? Well, that I was just mentioning before about endometrial receptivity assay, where um, we can actually biopsy the lining during a frozen embryo transfer cycle and make sure that we're putting back the embryos when the uterine lining is receptive. And even though we have a frozen embryo transfer protocol and should work for everybody, it doesn't, and we're trying to figure out why it doesn't, or or, it, or is there a way to improve it. 
Uh, so what we do is we put them through a mock cycle, a frozen embryo transfer cycle. And at the time we're going to be, that we should put back the embryos, we biopsy the lining, and we send it to see if it has those, to see whether it is receptive. We do get a report back and says that it's pre-receptive, meaning that we have to wait a day, or it's post-receptive where we should have transferred the day before, or even we've had some that have come back and said that we should transfer ju- just 10, 10 to 12 hours later. Um, so it's that, it's that precise. Um, yeah, that's so that's amazing. how we can, so we can yeah. control that a bit. The reason why the success rates with frozen embryo transfer are just as good as a fresh cycle is when we're putting back an embryo in a fresh cycle, in reality, we are, it's not in, it's not in accordance with the uterine lining. Actually, the embryo has to float around for several days until the uterine lining is ready. So we're not even putting it back at the right time that a normal blast would be within the uterine cavity. So um, just a few hours or even a day could really affect the outcome of a ART cycle. And that's and that is something that I think research has really been exploding on that understanding um, of 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 the, the the exact precise moment to to transfer, um, and that's actually very exciting. I don't know if there's any uh, is anything uh, currently happening uh, on that that you know of that's going to be presented um, at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine conference next month. Not that I'm aware of. No, we do yeah, try to improve. Kind of yeah, we 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 tried to improve on the uterine lining, and there were and there was some data out last year about doing what's what's called a scratch technique, which is where um, prior to a cycle beginning for for in vitro fertilization or even for donor egg, that you basically would kind of put niches within the uterine lining by using an instrument called a pipel, and basically you put little you and and you put little valleys within the uterine lining, and that is supposed to help with increasing growth hormones within the uterine lining to help with implantation and also kind of give a valley for the embryo to kind of settle into. Um, there was a study out that showed that that's beneficial in donor egg cycles um, that came out of um, reproductive biological associates in within Atlanta, Georgia, but there's also another study that came out of a practice in southern Jersey, southern New Jersey, that showed that even on fresh IVF cycles that it could be beneficial. Oh, interesting. All right. Yeah, um, uterine scratching, I think, isn't that how, I think it's the, that's yeah. the vernacular that it goes by, at least within the patient community, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You are listening to Creating a Family, and today we're talking about the latest developments in treating unexplained infertility. Clout, the online influence ranker, now ranks us as within the top, well, it depends on which day, but certainly the top two or three uh, in online influencer worldwide in infertility. We primarily hang out at Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest, and there are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can... Uh, like our page, which is, of course, Creating a Family. You can join our very large and very supportive support group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Creating a Family. Or the easiest way to find either the page or the group is simply to type in the words Creating a Family in the Facebook search box, and you can like the page and request to join the group. You can also connect with me individually. I'm Dawn.Davenport1. We also are on Twitter and Pinterest, and we go by at Creating a Family there. So I have often heard that oftentimes when we see unexplained infertility, it is really subpar fertility in both partners. That is the underlying culprit. Um, is that still the case? That that was information that's been uh, that's old information, but is it still the case that oftentimes? unexplained is really subpar on both partners' part. Yes, I, I I believe we're seeing more, I guess, couples' infertility instead of being male or female issue. Um, there, You mentioned before that uh, there's people, and basically couples are putting off childbearing until later on in life. And with that, it does come some sequelae where you start having maybe subtle egg issues or subtle sperm issues. Um, and even with regard to stress, um, 
the, the and which the mind body effect um, that could play a role. So I think we're seeing more combined infertility than there being a soul a soul source coming from uh, the male partner or from the female partner. Interesting. If, and, and have they altered the kind of the basic stats that we used to always hear? Well, we used to hear. Oh, well, it depends. One third, one third, one third uh, are uh, slightly more women uh, to men, and then uh, subpar. Have they altered those stats? I haven't seen where they have. I'm curious, but it makes sense what you're saying logically. Yeah, I, that I have not seen them adjust those statistics. Um, I know it's always broken down into male factor, or there's the ovarian factor, or there's yep. other factor, and the yes. other factor that we are kind of looking at. Um, but I'm not. I, I don't see them changing those percentages. So, how effective is IVF at achieving a pregnancy and a live birth in patients which were diagnosed or are diagnosed with unexplained infertility? Well, the issue really comes down to it. Really stratifies for age. In women who are under the age of 35, you're looking at close to a live birth rate of around 47 to 50 percent. Um, if a couple do nothing, it, because with unexplained in- infertility, you have to realize that the general population pregnancy rate is 20%, that, and which that's, that's basically couples that have no infertility issues. 20% are going to be successful, which, and which means 80% are not going to be. But however, with, with unexplained infertility, after a year, and they're... And, and we can't find a cause, their ability to get pregnant is not zero. It's 1% to 4%. And, and, and over a course of basically three years, if they do nothing, around 50% of them are going to get pregnant within a three-year period. So if we take a look at that, and now it's like how can we improve on that, we have several different options where we can do inseminations with, with, with let's say, Clomid or Letrozole. We can do superovulation using injectable drugs with insemination, but that still gives you a success rate of less than 20% each month get pregnant. With IVF, again, we are overriding a lot of uh, barriers that will help with us getting eggs and getting embryos and getting implantation. Um, but again, it, in which it's not 100%. So age does play a role. And even in women who are between the ages of, of 38 to 40, um, around... 29% of all embryo transfers result in live births. In those that are less than 35, we're looking at, like I mentioned before, around 48%. Yeah, so IVF, uh, although ha- but letrozole and Clomid uh, are still, even with unexplained, would be your, still your first line of, a, of, of attack? Well, of there, well, there are several different trains of thought and which are out there. We used to, in the past, years ago, we used to do Clomid with inseminations. If that didn't work, then we would consider doing a laparoscopy to take a look inside to see if there is any pelvic pathology, which we did not detect on a HSG or on a dye test, and then go on to superovulation with inseminations and then go on to IVF. There's been some recent literature out that has basically supported um, if someone doesn't get pregnant with Clomid with inseminations or Letrozole with inseminations or Tamoxifen, depending on what type of medication in which you want to use, uh, success rates are very similar and, and just between the three. If you're not pregnant with that, then the recommendation is really to go directly to IVF. There is no benefit to do a laparoscopy and to do superovulation with inseminations to go right to in vitro fertilization. It does a few things. That, number one, it, it, it reduces the cost of fertility treatment to a couple. The next thing is we may identify other causes that we could possibly improve on that could identify why they're not getting pregnant. And the third and the most important is the psychological strain, that this does put a lot of stress on a couple and on a patient um, they feel like they're living in a nightmare. They don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. And if you can shorten that tunnel, improve their success rates, and save them money, that is a win for everybody. Was that the FAST trial? Is that, or has, has there been That's something correct. since the FAST trial? Yeah. We've, yep. um, 
uh, I think uh, Dr. Reindoller was actually on the show talking about that. And, uh, yeah, it's it really is uh, fairly um, um, fascinating research. Uh, and as you point out, one thing they were looking one of the things they were looking at is just flat cost the actual cost to the patient or the insurance carrier mm-hmm. uh and uh unfortunately insurance uh, at least in some cases is still a requ- some insurance still requires mm-hmm. that you follow the the old procedure that you talked about which is you know lockstep so many months on an oral med then then so many number of IUIs and then moving into the superovulation IUIs and then to yeah. IVF. Um, but maybe we're making progress uh, with... Well, I uh, think because I, the, the other thing is that if we can identify a cause, even through those type of therapies, um, a lot, and with, um, with, with one of the insurance companies which we deal with, um, they really rely a lot on antral follicle count and they rely a lot on uh, the semen prep for insemination. So if you're not meeting in, and even though a man may have on the semen analysis, everything looks normal, when you prep the sperm for insemination, it may not be of uh, the standard needed uh, for an IUI, in, in, and which it may be suboptimal. In that situation, as long as, you can, as long as you can support that, that there's a male factor issue, and then on the sperm prep, they'll let you move directly to IVF. So you learn what each what each insurance company is looking for, and there's a lot of trial and error with that. But um, if you can support to them that it's going to waste the insurance's money to do these other therapies, knowing they're going to need IVF in the future, it kind of helps the process along. Okay. All right. You are listening to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. We primarily keep in touch with our audience through our weekly e-newsletter. We have two of them, one for infertility and one for adoption. We will let you get to choose which one to receive, or if you want to receive both, you can. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility as well as the upcoming week's blog and show topics, and we add usually about four pieces of content to our site. We'll tell you about those as well. You can sign up for our newsletter at on any top right on any page of our website, creatingafamily.com. All right, let me jump. Well, let me ask before I jump into the questions. There's one other question. So, when a patient continues to see failures of IVF, they either can't get pregnant or can't stay pregnant, even once they've moved to donor egg or donor egg and donor sperm or donor embryo. What can be the causes then? Because you've taken out uh, everything just about other than the, the the woman and her uterus because you've got, in the case of uh, a double donor cycle, donor egg, donor sperm, or donor embryo, you know, n- there's no gene- genetic material from either of the par- the intended parents. I think, and with that percentage, is quite a low percentage. Um, but then you start getting into some of the other research which is out there about it about um, immunal response, um, maybe a rejection issue. Um, and that's where you start getting into um, giving steroids to help decrease the immune response, to possibly use a anticoagulant just, just in case there is a thrombolic event or a thrombolic issue that you cannot diagnose. Um, there's been some research out in the past that kind of fell to the wayside about doing IVIG, which to build up the immunity. Um, lately, there's been some more information out there with these patients with with unexplained implantation failures is to give um, the intralipids and then as an infusion. Um, and what that is is basically that'll bind the inflammatory cells that, again, could cause a reaction when an embryo implants. So those are some things that are out there in which we do talk to our patients about, um, or we consult somebody who is a reproductive immunologist to kind of help coordinate that. Okay. So at that point, you're looking then outside for immunological issues um, or, or coagulant issues. Uh, mm-hmm. that those would be the more likely things you'd go, grab to, gravitate to. Yes. Okay. 
All right, we've got a number of questions from our uh, online community, so let me jump in. One uh, is from Shelley. She is wanting to have more information on unexplained male infertility and what is being done to better combat it. She says, um, my husband, for no known reason, has smaller testicles than he should and a very, very low t testosterone level, and his FSH level is low, too. They ruled out genetics but offered no explanation beyond sometimes it just happens for his very low and very poor sperm count due to this issue. He has taken uh, oral meds, uh, Clomid, and I don't know how to pronounce this one, uh, Aramidex. Ar 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 mm -hmm. Am I saying that right? Yes. A-R-I-M-I-D-E-X. And mm -hmm. he, she said when taken together that, that helped, but uh, it, he lost all interest in sex and even made giving a sample for the count difficult, so they ended up taking it off of it. Uh, and the Clomid alone didn't work. So basically what she's asking about is what's being done in the area of research for male unexplained infertility? Well, of what you discussed with me, that there is actually some other therapy that would, which is out there which would probably benefit him more than the medication he's taking. Um, trying to identify the cause for why his FSH is low, that would be um, the first goal, is to maybe do an imaging study in out of his head or do other testing to find out why is his FSH low. The next thing is, is if his FSH is low, what we would do is give him back the FSH, either in the form of Folostim or in or in gonadal F, which are injectables. We also use that along with HCG to help prime the testicle. And we basically have a hormone replacement regime, which basically he would use for, for three months because it takes three months for sperm to turn over. Then after those three months, we would get another semen analysis. In this situation, it kind of sounds like he has a condition called hypogonadotropic hypogonadism which then means that this is a pituitary issue and we have to figure out if there is any abnormalities within his pituitary gland that could affect him in the future, but also at this point in time that we can give him back those hormones to help improve his sperm count and is quite effective. Um, using the medications in, in, in which he mentioned is really not beneficial in those that are hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. They're not, it just does not improve testosterone. It does not improve sperm counts. So we would move directly right to the injectable medications to help improve his sperm count. So for male infertility, would the, a reproductive endocrinologist be who he would go to, or would it be a urologist or some other specialist? Who should he go to to receive the best treatment for his specific condition? Within our area, it is the reproductive endocrinologist um, because the sole purpose for giving him back those hormones is for reproduction. If he goes to a urologist, a lot of, a lot of them do, in which they do use Clomid, but then they don't monitor it, um, or they'll just give him Androgel, just give him um, a um, hand cream that contains an androgen, and that helps improve uh, sex drive, it does improve their libido, and it will make him feel better, but his sperm count's not going to improve. Interesting. Okay. All right. The next question is from Danielle. She is says, I'd like to know what our options are in getting help. I'm 44. I've had three IUIs, two IVFs, all failed. I've had two rounds of donor embryo. Uh, both of those have failed. Um, Let's see, I'm trying to skim over there. Neither of those rounds implanted, and uh, I don't know where to go to get answers. Do I have an inhabitable uterus? In some ways, you may have answered this question um, before when I talked about what can people do who are, in this case, she didn't, uh, she moved straight to donor embryo, not donor egg. But no luck with donor embryo. Um, Anything else in addition to what you mentioned before, which is doing uh, uh, testing at that point for or considering immunotherapy or, uh, or, or coagulation therapy, anything in addition to that that she might be doing? Perhaps maybe the, the, the assay you were talking about with the, well, I guess these were all, no, because these were probably all done as uh, frozen embryo, or at least her donor was, right. the endometrial receptivity assay? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, that's 
what what I would recommend for her is to make sure that um, testing for for implantation failure was was done. The other thing is to do an endometrial biopsy for what's called chronic inflammation. Now, if you have chronic inflammation in the uterine lining from some source, that even um, a two-week course of of antibiotic, antibiotics could actually alleviate that. But also, I put her through a mock cycle to do an ERA test, an endometrial receptivity assay test, and just basically determine whether or not the embryos are being put back at the right time. Because again, not every protocol works for every person, and they may be using the same protocol for each cycle. And again, if you just waited a day or transferred a day earlier, you can have a success. Does the does the timing for when um, the uterus is most receptive, is it almost always the same? Or, or could it just be that my normal is different from, uh, you know, Susie's normal, whereas for me it takes my uterus longer uh, to, to become, for that window of implantation? Or is that fairly unusual? No, that and, and which it can vary. Um, that's why um, when we when we talk about um, a higher successor with frozen embryo transfer cycles than with a fresh cycle in some cases, that we are able to control that implantation window. On a fresh IVF cycle, the estrogen levels we really cannot control because the estrogen really comes from the ovary. We can give the ovary the medication, and, but depending on how receptive that ovary is, the estrogen level can vary, and that will that can also affect the uterine lining. Um, there's been there's some studies out years ago that showed a high estrogen to progesterone ratio could could adversely affect the uterine lining. So that is why in some practices um, across the country they're not doing fresh transfers anymore. There are and which they're moving to frozen embryo transfer cycles because of that issue, that we have better control over that implantation window, and we can basically assess it for each woman. Because even though we use the medication of using estrogen and using progesterone, that, again, every woman's lining is not the same. So that is why doing this test can sometimes help identify, okay, is this the right protocol for that person? You know, and I, I there is some um, pushback from the patient community that we see uh, when we talk about that, that research you're, you're talking about, which is the um, success rates for frozen embryo. I think we're making progress, but there is a, I think, a, I think it's a, a throwback to when uh, our uh, cryopreservation, our freezing techniques were not so good, and people assumed that the and they assume that the embryos would have some type of damage. And also I think there's the common, just the, it's got to be better not to have had something frozen uh, than to have had something frozen. Do you see that in, in your practice as well, that people are hesitant if they have the option of doing a fresh, which sometimes they don't, but if they have the option, do you see pushback? Yes. M- most couples want to go with a fresh transfer. Yeah, um, and if we do do pre-implantation genetic testing and then on the embryos that and which we do do trifectoderm biopsies and therefore that we do freeze those embryos and then the patients have to come back through with a frozen embryo transfer cycle. Um, but yes, we do that. We do see that pushback. They want to complete a cycle. I think it also has to deal with that they're psychologically prepared to do that and by changing what they've read online or what their friends have told them or what their expectations are, it does cause additional stress and they really don't want to um, forego gratification if it's going to happen, that they've been doing it for two or three years by the time they go to IVF, let's say, and they don't want to push things off if there is that chance that, yes, I may get pregnant on a fresh cycle. Um, A lot of us when we're counseling patients, even about freezing embryos, um, within our state, the, that the big thing is cost of freezing embryos. So in some of those cases, patients don't even want to freeze. They say, let's just transfer. And then we have to counsel them of the number we want to transfer. And yeah. a lot of them want more than what the SART guidelines are or, or what the ASRM guidelines are. 
So in that situation, we sometimes get into a bit of a uh, heated discussion, I guess, way of putting it that we want to only put back one and they want two or three put back because in their eyes, more is better. You know, it's um, you're preaching to the choir here. We have one of our we have two kind of mantras. Uh, one is get uh, get to a specialist sooner rather than later. In other words, don't spend too mm-hmm. much time at your uh, OBGYN. And the second one is multiples is not the preferred outcome, and that right. single embryo transfers are are not only viable. They um, uh, reduce re, live birth rates are great, and uh, ultimately. Um, we tend to discount the risks associated with multiples in our society. We simply do. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, we're right behind you on that, uh, doing our very best to uh, to educate. And I really have in the last, say, four or five years, I truly have seen a shift. Um, I don't know if I'd say it. Certainly we haven't. We've got, I'm not saying we don't have a long way to go because we do, but I've, I see much more frequently people in our support group say that we'll be talking about um, actively wanting to transfer uh, just one. So, uh, yeah, so we're we're working, we're working, got a ways to go. <laughs> Let me take a moment to thank a few more of our sponsors, our gold sponsors. It is through their generous support that we can bring you this show. Uh, some of our great sponsors, we mentioned a couple at the beginning. Some of the others are the Law Office of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to both adoption as well as assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program and legal services for both independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation. And we have Fairfax Cryobank. There have been a, they have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. All right, we have a question from Jennifer. She says, our RE says we have unexplained infertility. We did so, so many tests over the past years before seeing him, but he says that we don't need to do more tests. So my question is, which which tests do couples need these days to diagnose unexplained infertility? Um, basically, we start off with, as with any couple who comes into our office, we do a semen analysis. We would... Um, also do some some testing to take a look at the uterine cavity and to doc and to document tubal patency uh either is the hsg um or something called a femview um and then we also get testing for ovarian reserve we get day 3 testing which would include a fsh a amh as well as a, as well as an estradiol level based on those three tests or those three areas we can then make the determination what is the diagnosis at that time? She mentioned that she went through, I guess, several treatment cycles. Um, well, no. She said they went through a lot of testing over the last oh, year before sorry. they saw their RE. Uh, mm-hmm. But now the RE is saying that he doesn't, uh, it's a he, he doesn't, uh, they don't need any more tests. Okay. Uh, I don't know. It seems yeah. like if the tests were a couple of years old, you'd want to redo them. Yes. If, and, if, and if they are outdated, um, that we like, before we start any treatment cycle, we like to know the ovarian age um, at that time. So we would normally would recommend getting blood work uh, within a three-month period of starting a cycle. With regard to uh, the uterine evaluation and tubal patency tests, we usually like that done within the last year. Um, and, if they, and if they had surgery, like a laparoscopy or something like that, and they documented the tubes were open, uh, and the uterine cavity is normal by hysteroscopy, then, and which that's fine by us also. The semen analysis, we'd like it to be within six months. Um, so those are kind of our guidelines. I guess every practice is different. Um, there are some other tests you can do, like I just mentioned. You could do a laparoscopy to figure out if there's any pelvic pathology because you have to keep in mind that 40% of women w- will have a chlamydial trachomatis antibody and not recall ever having a sexually transmitted disease, which means they've been exposed to chlamydia through a partner, maybe in the past, um, 
and were never diagnosed with the infection. However, their body took care of it naturally. That does have sequelae with the fallopian tubes. The fallopian tubes could be scarred to the side of their pelvis. Um, the fingers at the end of the tube or the fimbria could, they could be glued together and can't pick up an egg. And even though the tubes are open, they're not functional. So in the past, we used to do a laparoscopy as part of the basic workup. We don't do that anymore. We do discuss it with our patients if they fail conservative therapy to determine whether or not do we go on to doing superovulation with inseminations because if the clomid with inseminations didn't work, the superovulation is probably not going to work either. Um, or do we need to go directly to IVF? And doing a laparoscopy at that, at that juncture uh, can also help determine, okay, do we do more inseminations, or is there enough information there to say you need IVF, which would also support the insurance company to cover it. So outside of those three tests, if you want to do a laparoscopy, if a person is having dysmenorrhea or dyspareunia, if there's other indications for pelvic pathology, then you can entertain doing a laparoscopy. But otherwise, those are the three areas in those are the three areas in which we would that we would initially look at. Well, in this case, too, it's not clear whether she's ever gone through an IVF cycle. And from what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, there is some evidence to say that. IV, you can learn a lot with an IVF cycle itself mm -hmm. that may explain uh, the unexplainable. And that's true, but I wouldn't use that as a sole diagnostic tool just because okay. of the cost of it. Um, well, valid point. So in and that situation, yeah. yes, um, and, even, and even, in, in, even in our state, in New Jersey, that we are a mandated state, so we do have fertility coverage for probably 80% of um, – 80% and, uh, uh, and then of the populace here. Um, but even there, you don't want to push somebody into doing something unless they actually need it. Yeah, well, that's good. That's a good point. All right, we have two questions from our uh, very similar questions from Amy and Colleen. They ask if there are any reasons for recurrent miscarriages before the eight-week mark. Um, Amy's had three. Colleen has had six. Um, and their diagnosis is, uh, they've both had a number of tests, but the diagnosis is still unexplained. Thoughts on uh, being able to get pregnant but not being able to stay pregnant past the eight-week mark? Okay. Um, there are some tests that, that should be done. Uh, there is the pregnancy loss uh, panel, which is advocated by and uh, ASRM, which with and, and within their technical bulletin, they have it all broken down about genetic testing. Uh, you check for metabolic diseases. You check for a woman's and just ovarian age again. You look at the uterine cavity to make sure there's nothing else going on, like a septum, a polyp, a fibroid, or scar tissue. Um, you look at the partner's genetics, and also you look at um, thrombophilias, as well as anticarlipin antibodies, lupus anticoagulants. There's different things like that, that that could affect implantation. Outside of that, again, you have to take a look at uh, the embryo itself, that if, if, if all the screening tests are normal, you can move on to more aggressive treatment to say, okay, if you are unexplained habitual loss patient, then we need to help improve the uterine lining and help improve egg quality. And that's where we would go directly to the injectable fertility drugs uh, and probably use inseminations with that so you know when, when conception occurred. You can also monitor, again, progesterone levels to make sure that the ovary is producing a good quality egg in which they do not have what's called a luteal phase de defect or um, luteal phase insufficiency. Um, and then you can address that at that time. If we go through conservative therapy using the injectables with insemination and she has another loss or things don't occur, then you really need to think about whether to go to IVF and think about doing pre-implantation genetic testing to check for aneuploidy, to check for other things that could, again, result in a first trimester loss. Couldn't that be determined through genetic testing of the of the embryo as it once it's expelled through the miscarriage? You can. The only problem is that in many cases the tissue which is removed, unless it is cleaned 
and removed of maternal tissue, then you may get um, an erroneous result. There are that that there's testing out now where um, you can take the consepsis that in which was passed, you get the maternal blood, and then you can determine whether or not the results on the pathology specimen are accurate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It, 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 that oftentimes it's not a fully formed uh, fetus at that point, so it's going to be hard to necessarily do the testing on it and uh, to separate it from the other maternal blood and things. Mm-hmm. Here's a question we have. Can a negative RH factor have anything to do with unexplained infertility? I have a negative blood type, and I have had the Rogam shots within 48 hours of bleeding with each miscarriage, and I believe this person said three. So I know it shouldn't have an impact on future pregnancies, but after having one chemical pregnancy and two miscarriages, miscarriages, it's hard to wonder if it does. So I thought that was an interesting question. I had not given it much thought, but the RH factor and miscarriage, can that, uh, when do we know whether to give the, the, the Rogan shots and when, and, and is it necessary? Right. The, that the research is really inconclusive of whether or not you actually need to give Rogam um, in someone who's miscarrying that is under 10 weeks gestation. Um, we, that we do it just because the data is not out there to say you shouldn't do it. But um, there, there, there is some study, studies out there that show that there's not enough blood cells in the consepsis to actually cause an immune response within the mother. So it's not till after usually 10 to 12 weeks is there enough uh, fetal blood that can cause that type of a reaction. So um, the other thing that, you, that they can actually do is um, to, uh, I'm not sure if they've tested the partner to see if the partner is RH positive or RH negative. Um, I'm assuming they did and that the partner was RH positive. Um, but if he's negative, then you don't really even need the Rogam. But to answer oh, the question, but to, yeah. an- but to answer the question, there is no link, um, which I'm aware of, of the of the RH factor being linked to pregnancy losses. Okay, interesting. All right, I hadn't really given that question much thought. All right, um, Colleen is asking: Is it becoming more common to see miscarriages following IVF with PGS pregenetic screening? It's been around for a few years now, and I feel like a lot of women are having miscarriages after spending tons of money to factor out abnormalities in the embryo. Um, another way, I guess, of asking that same question is, is PGS effective at preventing or reducing miscarriages? That, and which that has actually been supported within literature, that pre-implantation genetic testing has actually increased the success rates um, in specific populations, uh, and mainly in those that are older um, because of the higher risk for aneuploidy. So that has actually increased the pregnancy um, uh, success, basically, that by putting back a genetically normal embryo, it does increase the, uh, increase the IVF success rates. Um, also in those with recurrent pregnancy losses, that uh, identifying those embryos in which are genetically normal or genetically competent um, has increased implantation rates and having a successful outcome. Okay, so the answer is that, in yes. fact, what she's seeing is probably one of those situations where, because it flies in the face of what we're expecting, it uh, because uh, when you see it, therefore you're assuming that there there's an increase uh, because the assumption is, that every time we have PGS, it means it would prevent it, which it doesn't. It just would reduce the, the studies have said it will reduce the the prevalence, but not completely do away with the, the fact that it's not a particular potential cure for all miscarriages. No, it is not. But the other thing is, I'm not sure which population it, in 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 which he's talking to, um, and it's also of where of where somebody is getting that information from. Um, that of course, people who have a good outcome you may not hear that as much as somebody who had a bad outcome. Exactly. But what I, but what I was saying, and just to summarize, is that 
pre-implantation genetic testing has has reduced the risk of miscarriage of those that are using in vitro fertilization who are older and those that have recurrent pregnancy losses for a unexplained cause. Excellent. Well, we have come to the end of our hour uh, once again. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. William Ziegler, for being our guest today to be talking to talk with us about unexplained infertility. To our audience, if you've enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, do us a favor and give us a ranking on iTunes. We are ranked as number one on iTunes in this field, and we would love to keep that ranking, and that's what iTunes uses. Uh, and most people find us through, uh, or new people coming in will find us through that, those rankings, and we would really appreciate it. It's super easy to do. Just go to iTunes, search for Creating a Family, and you can give us either a star ranking or you can give us a, um, a, a comment if you're feeling particularly generous. I know that many of you are going to want some more information about this, Unexplained Infertility uh, or uh, Dr. William Ziegler. You can get that at their website, fertilitynj.com. He is with the Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey, and their website is fertilitynj, as in New Jersey. So fertilitynj.com. Thank you all for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. The moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.